out of the night that covers me. Black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the clutches of circumstance, I have not cried, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate nor charged the, with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. This morning's text addresses in a positive way the self-deceptive sin of self-reliance. Oh, the words of poetry and song make self-reliance sound so noble, but it is very, very wrong. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of First Timothy. The next couple of weeks, we will be wrapping up this series in First Timothy. At the end of First Timothy, there is this, what seems like a parenthetical statement. Um, it, it seems like there's, there's this benediction that, that if, if I were ending a book, I'd want to put the period there, the, the mark in the letter, and that would be it. But Timothy goes on, or Paul goes on when writing to Timothy. He has some additional advice that has to do with economics. We have to ask ourselves the question, why is this here? What is he trying to say in this last few comments after the benediction? Let me read for you um, the text. And we're going to focus on verses um, beginning in verse 17, 17 and 18 and 19 this morning of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And just a reminder of, of the entire book. The entire book we've called this series household because the entire book is Paul writing to an elder, a pastor at Timothy, and he is saying to Timothy to put order to the house of God. And in that, there we see in this text, there's two households that are wed together, two households that depend upon one another. And that is the biological household, the home, and the church of God. And so I think that is a clue that helps us understand why this ending to the book, why Paul has this inspired thought by God, inspired by God, to put down these last few thoughts even after the benediction. Look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, um, and we'll read, we'll read through the end of the chapter. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. 
Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. I want to focus on verses 17 through 19 um, in this addition after the amen. And what we see is here is Paul reminding Timothy about home economics and the sin of self-reliance. In the positive, um, he tells us three things. He tells us three things. Here's, here's the three things. Here's where we're going this morning. We'll put them up on the screen as we look at these, this parenthetical statement of, of home economics and the sin of self-reliance. First, he says, set your hope on God. Set your hope on God. And he's, he's dealing with, with economics, and he says, that's your capital. Set your hope on God. Then be generous, and then finally, store up treasure. So those are, those are the three things that we're going to look at from the text this morning. Set your hope on God, be generous, and store up treasure. The first thing that we learn is that those who are wealthy, those who have means in this present age must set their hope on God. That's what verse 17 says. Look at the text with me. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It should be recognized here that Paul does not condemn wealth. He doesn't condemn it. He doesn't condemn the, the accumulation of wealth, but rather the scriptures tells us how to use that and what attitude that we ought to have in those things, that those things ought to not steal our hope, but rather they ought to set our hope. 
Riches have, have a tendency to steal our hope in that we set our hope on them. But here he says that we are to set our hope on God. Why? It's right there in the text. Because riches are what? Are they certain or uncertain? They are uncertain. But God is certain. God's certain. You know, I think that we, when we look at this particular text, we're reminded of bef- the, the passage that comes before this, where Paul address, addresses an attitude and instructs Timothy. The attitude is the love of riches. And he says the, the love of riches, what? Steals away our desire and puts our desire on those riches rather than the giver of all good things. And so we're, we're reminded of that passage. In fact, he says that, that this kind of desire, setting our hope, setting our heart on anything in the world that brings us pleasure or position or power is the root of many different kinds of evil. That's what he says early. You know, it's not only the wealthy, but also those who think of themselves as poor that are tempted to, to love or to love wealth and set their hope um, on wealth. But the biblical perspective here instructs our hearts that we are to set our affection, our hope on Jesus. You know, the world is divided, and it's divided over many things. There's four things that immediately um, come to mind. The things that, that are dividing in the world often are um, race or culture, gender, political affinity, and class. Um, it pertains to all classes. It is tempting for one side to demonize the other without giving certain consideration to the character of the person. Sometimes those that have assume certain things of those who have not because they have not. And sometimes those who have not assume certain things of those who have. This is wrong. There are unrighteous rich and there are unrighteous poor. There's also righteous rich, and there's righteous poor. We ought to judge according to the content of character and not by superficial observation, but the world is very divided along these lines. And Paul, when he's writing here to Timothy, and Timothy is an elder in the church, the church at Ephesus, He's writing to a man who is pastoring individuals that come from all different kinds of places and economic means or very little means. It's easy for them to divide. There's always potential for division in the church along all kinds of different lines. Paul here is saying, no, We need to do something so that we are united because the reality is we don't have to work for our unity. Jesus has secured that. We are a body. We need to live in the truth of the unity that we have in Christ. So let's consider deeper, verse 17. 
as for the rich in this present age. Um, who are the rich? Well, it's an all matter of perspective, right? You've heard the facts and figures. Um, if you have the opportunity to travel outside of the country and travel around the world, you'll see that the poor in one place are the rich in another. A lot of it has to do with perspective. And every society has its classes. Every society distinguishes between the lower, the middle, and the upper class. Um, some are, societies are considered wealthy, others wealthy and ultra-wealthy. Which of these groups does Paul have in mind when he says, as for the rich in this present age? Well, they obviously have some kind of means. I think it is tempting when we look at this passage to say, I'm not in this category. Um, why would you say you're not in this category? It's because our heart says, well, I'm not wealthy. The guy above me is wealthy, right? It's always one more. It's always if I have, that's the, so he must be writing to someone else. I would encourage you to reconsider who is wealthy Maybe you are in that class. The phrase here in this present age is important because Paul is contrasting in this present age with all eternity, the life to come. And Paul speaks of those that are wealthy in this present age, and he contrasts it with the storing up of treasure in the age that is to come. Those that are wealthy have plenty for themselves, and they have enough to share with others. And Paul commands Timothy to do what? Notice he commands, the word is charge. Well, wait a minute. Pastor, I really would like suggestions from the pulpit. I want suggestions from God's word. This is a passage that is about our heart, and, and when we dig really into this and we let the scriptures um, work on our soul, we begin to see where we attribute authority. The Bible says that um, we are idol makers, that we tend to exchange the worship of God for the worship of other things. We give other things authority. The word of God, Paul is instructing Timothy to preach with authority, to charge. Say, this isn't optional. Let me just suggest to you. Now, there's application that can be in the way of suggestion, and that's a good thing. Application shouldn't, we shouldn't make application into law. The word of God is the law. So we need to preach with the tone and tenor of the text to charge. And we need to receive this as a charge from God in his word. Receive that this way. This is the language of command meant to be carried out, not to be dismissed as soon as you walk out the door. There's three things that are mentioned in verse 17. Two are stated negatively, the third positively. First, Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them what? Not to be haughty. Haughty is to have an arrogant attitude, to have an arrogant attitude, to think, well, because... I have a gift, right, a blessing of earthly possessions, resources, that somehow that makes me better than another human being. Right? It says, charge them not to be haughty. You see the way um, uh, that self-reliance is self-deceptive. 
for the brand of clothes or the clothes that you wear or the car that you drive or the things that you have or the amount in your bank account makes you no better or no worse in value than the man or woman next to you, in front of you, behind you, or the man or woman on the, on the street. Everyone is created in the image of God and has intrinsic value because the maker made him or her. So don't be haughty and think because you have something that somehow you're better. Be humble. Don't be haughty. Be humble. The remedy for the haughty attitudes found here, it says, says in verse 17, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's a gift. God's given it. And you know what? It's not wrong to enjoy it. Don't be embarrassed. If you have means, please don't be embarrassed of that. But recognize that's a gift. God gave it. God gave it. Receive all things, all good things from God. Enjoy good things. That is not out of bounds for Christians. It's actually in bounds when you're using it to say, this came from God and we worship him. Right? I saw you doing this at camp. We had wonderful weather over camp, at least Saturday and Sunday. It was fantastic. But we can't say, oh, look, look at the beautiful weather that I have created. Any more than we can say, look at my bank account. Well, where did you get the ability and the health and the strength and the wisdom and the insight? It all came from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? And when you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It is a gift. It's a gift. Proverbs 22, 2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Secondly here, Paul says to Timothy to charge the rich not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, that riches are uncertain. They are not secure. You know, oftentimes riches have an insecurity that, that goes along with them. You realize that if you read the DSM-5, there's certain mental illnesses that are attributed to wealthy communities, wealthy individuals, that, that actually if you don't have very much, you you don't meet one of the qualifications. So there's, there's a certain insecurity or anxiety that comes with why? Because you, you have it and you have to maintain it. And oftentimes we think of how do we maintain it? Well, I got to have more. And so there's this anxiety that builds. See, it's because our hope, if we're anxious about what we have, then our hope is set on the wrong things. Life is incredibly uncertain. You look at the men and women who have made money and lost money, you often find that there are individuals that do well when it comes to economics, that they have done both. That they have made money and they have lost money and they have made money. Well, what, what's happening there? What, you, you, it's, it's important to look at those kinds of things. Right? And, and look at their attitude towards those things. 
life is uncertain. You can make all the right decisions and see all that God has allowed you to do to crumble, but you will not if your hope is set on him. Thirdly, Timothy was to positively, so there's two negatives, this is the positive. Exhort the rich to set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, God is, he's worthy. He's worthy to bear our hope. We looked at last week when we were out at camp that we grieve as ones who have hope, who have hope, and our hope is where? In God, and God's worthy to bear out our hope. He is strong enough to bear out our hope. He is infinite. He is unchangeable. He is faithful. And so he says, hope in God. Hope in God. Set your hope on God. God is the one who provides for us. It's the Christian that is ultimately the one who is in the best position to enjoy all things. And so he tells us to set our hope on God. Second, he says, be generous. Look at verse 18 in the text. Um, He says here in verse 18 that we are to... Do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. What are the rich to do in heart? They are to hope in God. And what are they to do with their hands? They are to be generous and ready to share. It's heart and hands. They're related. They go together. Um, Those who love money, whose hope is set on riches, will have a hand that's tightly closed. But those who love God and love Mankind, their hope is set on God, and they have hands that are open, open, open to the poor and needy around them. The rich demonstrate that their hope is in God by what? By their generosity. And I would say it's anybody who is generous, rich or not rich, they demonstrate their hope is in God by their generosity. Paul says three things here. He says, one, those who are rich are to do good. They're to do good. In other words, their treasure, we we saw that their treasure, one of the purposes of treasure is to enjoy. All good things come from God, and certainly they bring certain pleasures and joy, and that is from God, that is good, but they're also to use those things to do good. They're to do good. Um. Paul continues, and he uses this kind of play on words here in the text, that he urges the rich to be rich in what? Rich in good works. They're to be rich in good works. One individual talks about this. Um, He he says this about these these kinds of principles. And, And he uses economic terms, right? Because when we're talking about people who have means or wealth, they have a certain amount of capital, Right? They have a certain amount of capital. The text is saying, what do you do with that capital? Well, the Bible says here that you're to be rich in good works. You're to do good things with that capital. Listen to this. Capitalism, biblical capitalism, is ultimately altruistic. Capitalists begin with an imaginative response to the needs of others. They have to forego their own consumption and save to assemble the resources to deploy for a process, the outcome which is determined not by themselves, 
but by customers and investors, neither of whom are under the control of the entrepreneur himself. The entrepreneur has to collaborate. The entrepreneur follows the golden rule. He wants others to succeed. Any business is completely dependent on the success of those in it and all those around it. Now, oftentimes, um, greed is misattributed to those who have wealth. It's misattributed to those who have wealth. Well, that's what, that's what he's getting out here. He's talking about building what? He's building the house of the church. This, this is an issue to the church. This is not just simply about economics, divorce from the church. This is not about economics, divorce from the household. Because what ultimately props up an economy of large scale? It's what happens in the home on a small scale. It's the character that you have. That's why he started this section out by addressing character and being conformed to the image of Jesus. It plays out directly into home economics and the economics of the household of faith and ultimately into the economics of a nation. The economics of a nation will be no more trustworthy than the moral character of the individuals who live in that nation. Sometimes it is attributed to the wealth in a divisive to the wealthy in a divisive way as if because they have they automatically have immoral character. That is not true. It's far better attributed to socialism and a welfare state, says one writer, where, and here's his quote, they seek comfort and security first. They collaborate with government to get special privileges and contracts and seats at the public trough. All of this agrees with what Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Um, the wealthy are to be generous and ready to share because why? Their hope is not set on their wealth. We cannot have our hope set on wealth, but rather our hope is on God. Sometimes we, we talk about this and we say, well, I, what if my neighbor doesn't want to share? Who's going to make him or her share what they have? Because if they don't share, then, you know, how, how's the world going to spin? Well, this is where the gospel enters into this economic equation. You think about how Jesus comes to you in the scriptures to convict you and convince you of sin. Does he make you love him? No. What does he do? He convinces you by his love and by his self-sacrifice. You see, what makes a better economic system is when Christian, Christians live by the king's economy. We need to live by the king's economy. And if he blesses us, we need to reinvest that in self-sacrificial 
giving. And you know that giving isn't always just here in the offering, and it's not necessarily giving money simply away. Sharing can be inputting people to work. Think of this. Giving begins, or giving, beginning with the family and extending outward into society is the moral center of an economic system. It does not succeed by allowing the leading capitalists to revel in riches. If they hoard their wealth, the system tends to fail. It succeeds by inducing the capitalist continually to give his wealth back into the system in the form of new gifts and investments. That's an economist. That's a thoroughly biblical statement. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy here. And where does it start? It starts in the home. It starts in the church. That's how you build an economy. It's about household economics. It begins by setting your hope on God. That's what's secure. That's the foundation. In fact, he's going to get at this foundation that you're actually building. It's not in this present world, but it's in the life that is to come by building in this present world in the way that God designs, living according to the king's economy. You are setting your hope on God. You're being generous in this world because you know that it is about the worship of God. And then finally, what happens is you're actually storing treasure up where rust and moth do not corrupt. Here we get into this wordplay as we get into our, our final point. Paul tells Timothy that they will store up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here we have a, our second wordplay in the passage, treasures in the life to come. This sounds a lot like who? Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? In Matthew 6, where he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a whole industry built on Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. Or 19 through 21, it's called the ring doorbell, right? Why do you see those everywhere now? Well, partly because you have packages delivered to your front door, and what have they sold you that product on? Because you don't want somebody to do what? Steal your packages, invade your home, take your stuff. Now, we live in a fallen world. It's probably a good thing that you're concerned about that. But here he says, be careful about storing up for yourselves treasures. It doesn't say that, that having treasure in this life and in this world is wrong. But it's how you use it. And how you use it determines the payoff on your investment for all eternity. That's what you're doing. Right? We are eternal economic capitalists investing in the worship of Jesus, setting our hope on God, being generous with what he has given so that it produces fruit in this life, in others, and 
the benefit pays eternal dividends. Today we have a system, a system that is devolving. One individual writes this of um, the system that we have in place. And really the, the philosophy and worldview that is behind the economic system that we have, he addresses, he addresses several companies. He, sa- he, he, he looks at this through the paradigm of one particular company, um, which we all know. It's the company called Google. This is what he says on a deeper level. The world of Google, its interfaces, its images, its videos, its icons, its philosophy is 2D. It lives in a flat world. When Christians live in a 3D world, an amazing cosmic universe, Google is not just a company but a system of thinking. And the internet is cracking under the weight of its ideology. Its devotees uphold a flat universe theory of materialism, the sufficiency of deterministic chemistry and mathematics. They believe the human mind is a suboptimal product of random evolutionary processes. They believe in the possibility of a silicon brain. They believe that machines can learn in a way comparable to human learning, that consciousness is relatively insignific- an insignificant aspect of humanity, emergent from matter, and that the ab- imagination of true novelties is a delusion in a hermetic world of logic. They hold that human beings have no more to discover and as may retire on a guaranteed pensions while Larry Page and Sergey Brin fly off with Elon Musk and live forever in a galactic walled garden on their own private planet, planets in a winner-take-all cosmos. Why? Because you're only going to get stuff like this from God's word in 1 Timothy chapter 6 in the Bible. Right? The people that, that are creating the world system have a whole different worldview, and it is damned. But out of the ashes, over and over and over again, throughout human history, and promised in the, world, in, in, the, in the word of God, there is a resurrection. It's the truth of Jesus that cannot fail, and it is the eternal foundation that we are laying in this world that will exist forevermore. And it's practical. It comes right down to dollars and cents. It comes right down to how you spend your time, your money, and your resources. So this morning, as we look at this passage and we say, Paul, why do you put this parenthesis at the end? You know, I think under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that God said to him, remind them of this, charge them of this. There's going to be economies of great wealth that falter and fail. In churches who divide simply because their hope is not set on Jesus. Oh, that we would set our hope on Jesus. Are you struggling today? 
Know that that's the answer. Jesus is the answer for all things. He is the answer. Find your way to the center of the gospel. For that is the end of all humanity. And it is a bright future. But you have to trust. It begins with humility. It requires and compels our generosity. And it propels us to the worship of God for all eternity. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we thank you for such practical texts like this. Thank you for blessing us. Uh, thank you for giving to us an abundance. And I know that, that um, there, there are times where man, things are tight. The road is hard. I don't think, feel like there's much at the end of the month. And that is difficult. It's easy in those moments to set our hope on Jesus. Lord, give us wisdom to know how to use our talents and abilities for your kingdom. Help us as individuals not to believe in the myth and sin of self-reliance. We are not the captain of our soul. You are the one that deserves all of our trust. And so in the times of our lives that we have abundance, let us first consider where that comes from. May we enjoy those times, but may we also use, may we use what you have given to us, whether that's a particular talent, or that's 15 extra minutes, or that's sacrificing our agenda to help someone in need. Lord, let us not believe that someone else is called to help, to give, to provide. But let us set our hope on you as the one who provides for all humanity. For you send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But Lord, we are called, even required, commanded, charged, to use the bounty of your grace to honor you. Loving neighbor is never something that we ought to be strong-armed into. But the world ought to learn to love neighbor because they see Christians so deeply loving Jesus, their Savior. Lord, make us into that kind of people who love people so well, who love brothers and sisters in Christ in the unity that you have given so well, that makes others curious. May there be no other authority or idol that comes before you. For you are the ruler, the one, the sovereign. We worship you this morning. And we worship you even in these moments as we allow your word to settle in our hearts. To once again come to a place where
you call us to respond. May we respond this morning in a way that gives you glory. Put the church to work in our homes and in our community in a way that glorifies you, trusting that you will provide as you always have and you always will in Jesus. Our confidence rests there. Amen.